Our most gracious Father, we do thank you for who you are. You are a good God, a God who sees everything, who knows everything, who cares about the things that go on in this world, a God who loves his children dearly. We pray, Lord, that as we study your word today, as we gather today, that you'll comfort us, that you'll strengthen us, and that you'll conform us more to the image of Christ. We remember your promise that you are causing all things to work toward that end, that purpose. Father, we pray for our country. With all the turmoil we see, with all the anger we see, with all the violence we see, Lord, we pray for peace. We remember that you will punish evil, that you will deal ultimately and justly with evildoers. And yet, Lord, help us to see these evildoers who are so committed to violence, who are so angry. Let us see them not as our enemies, but as people who need the gospel. We pray for revival in our land, Lord. Not for our own comfort, not for the sake of our own well-being, but for the glory of Christ to be demonstrated, for your power and glory to be demonstrated in the transformation of countless lives. We also pray for our leaders. We pray for our mayors. We pray for our governors. We pray for our president. We pray for our Supreme Court justices. We pray for their salvation first and foremost. Father, we pray that you would open their eyes, that they may behold the glory of Christ and their need for a Savior. We pray that they would govern in a way that allows us to continue to gather peaceably and without causing any type of ruckus or anything like that. We pray that they would govern in accordance with your word. We pray that they would see the importance of worshiping you as a congregation that they would see that church is essential because your word declares that it is essential. Father, we ask these things again not for our comfort, but for the glory of Christ, that he may be reflected in our lives, that his light may shine clearly through us. Oh, Father, there are so many things that cause so much distress in us. Please give us peace. Please give us comfort. Please be our refuge. And Father, as we now turn to your word, we remember that it is inerrant, it is inspired, it is sufficient, that it is our guide for every situation in life. And so we pray that you would use your word today to accomplish your purposes in our life first and foremost, being conforming us to the image of Christ. Whether that means tearing things in our lives down or building things in our lives up, we pray that your word would accomplish your purposes as we study it. We also pray for our children, both inside the womb and outside the womb. We pray for their salvation. We pray that even today, seeds would be planted that would bear a ripe and rich, fruitful harvest in your time. 
Father, thank you for the children that we have. We remember that they are a gift from you, that they are a reward from you, and we pray that you would help us to become faithful disciple-makers of them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you, uh, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 9. We are literally starting a new chapter today in John chapter 9. We've been in John chapter 8 for a couple months. We've been in the Gospel of John for over two years now, if you can believe that. Uh, it's going to be a five-year study. I warned you guys at the beginning. It's going to be about a five-year study. That's okay. Um, next week I'll be preaching a psalm. Every first Sunday of the month I do preach a psalm. Uh, but today we'll be starting John chapter 9. A totally new chapter, taking things a different direction, but yet very connected to chapter 8. You know, one of the, one of the more common arguments, if you've, uh, if you've tried, tried witnessing to uh, particularly atheists, uh, one of the more common arguments that they will come up with when they're trying to either deny that God is good, or maybe deny that God is powerful, or maybe just completely denying that God exists, one of the more common arguments they'll bring up is what philosophers and theologians have referred to as uh, the problem of evil. The problem of evil, to summarize it basically, it boils down to the question of how a perfectly good, all-powerful God could ever possibly allow there to be suffering and evil. C.S. Lewis framed the, the question that an atheist would, would have or the objection that an atheist would have. He framed it this way. He said, quote, If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy, and if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy, therefore God lacks either goodness or power or both. End quote. Uh, to put it another way, the argument is basically if God exists, there would be no evil, there would be no suffering. Evil and suffering do exist, and therefore, the reasoning goes, God doesn't exist. Or if he does exist, that he isn't good, or he isn't all-powerful, and therefore, he's not worthy of our worship and devotion. So the flaw, just right out of the gate, let's address the flaw with this argument. The flaw with this argument is that it assumes that absolutely nothing good can come from suffering. Now, the Bible never denies the reality of suffering. To the contrary, it actually affirms the reality of suffering from the beginning to the end. Uh, and in affirming the reality of suffering, it has a lot to say about suffering and a lot to say about evil. It reveals the nature of suffering. It reveals the ultimate cause of, of suffering and, and of evil. And it reveals the purposes of suffering. You see, without the light of Scripture, without Scripture informing our minds and our understanding of suffering, without Scripture shining light on the subject, we would have to admit that we can't be sure that there is any purpose to suffering at all, specifically any good purpose at all. And at that point, we would have to allow, at least allow for the possibility that suffering is without purpose, that it accomplishes nothing, and maybe it's even cruel, objectively speaking. So one of the passages that 
offers us incredible insight into the reality of suffering and the purposes of suffering is the one that we find ourselves in today as we begin our study of John chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5. Uh, This begins an entirely new section of John's gospel testimony. What's interesting to note is the way that John's testimony is actually mapped out, the way his his book is mapped out in the first chapter of the book. Uh, In chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, we read, He came to his own, speaking of Jesus, of course, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." Now, let's just take those clauses one at a time because there's a lot to unpack in those. And, of course, if you want to know, you know the, the full exposition, if you want to hear the full exposition of that, we do have those on our website. But first it says he came to his own. That is, he came to his people. He came to the Jews. He confronted the religious leaders, primarily the Pharisees, and yet they did not receive him. That's actually what we've seen in the chapters leading up to this point is that they did not receive him. They didn't believe in him. The next clause, found in verse 12, starts with a contrast. John writes, but, there's your contrast, but as many as received him, that's the point we're in today. That's the point we find ourselves at as we come into chapter 9. Jesus has been contending with the Jews, but now the focus shifts to those who received him. He's been contending with those who did not receive him. Now the focus turns to those who did receive him and who, as a, a, as a result of God's will, not their own, just like it says in verses 12 and 13, believe and become children of God. So chapter 8 was really centered. It really flowed out of what Jesus said in chapter 8, verse 12, when he said that he's the light of the world and whoever follows him will not walk in darkness. It was a chapter that focused primarily on the effect of light shining into the darkness. It focused on man's, natural man's response, which was to scatter. But chapter 9 is different. In chapter 9, the focus is on God acting in sovereign grace, giving light and life to the elect. And this is seen and demonstrated in this chapter as our only hope, God's sovereign electing grace. Jesus was rejected by ethnic Israel, but he wasn't thrown off. He wasn't dissuaded from seeking and calling spiritual Israel to himself. He knew there would be ethnic Jews, ethnic Israelites who would believe, and he knew that there would be Gentiles who would also believe and be grafted into Israel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God's plans would not be thwarted. That's, that's, the, that's the thing that we need to gather from that, is that God's plans would not be thwarted. He's never caught off guard. He's never surprised. Everything, everything always goes according to plan for God. There's nothing that does not go according to plan when it comes to God. And so Christ's ministry and his mission continue even though he's been rejected by his own. Now our opening passage 
takes place immediately after Jesus departed from the Pharisees, who ended chapter 8, if you remember, with murder in their hearts, stooping down to pick up stones to murder Jesus with, but he departed from them in what was undoubtedly a supernatural, miraculous escape. But as he departed from them, as he's, as he's leaving them, he comes across a man who was suffering, a blind man. And this leads to a really interesting dialogue between Jesus and his disciples that takes place in verses 1 to 5. And this dialogue helps us find answers to two important questions about suffering. First of all, why does God allow suffering? And secondly, what are we to do in light of the reality of suffering in this world and in our own lives? So the point of this passage is this. The point of this passage is that even in the midst of suffering, God is good and his will is being accomplished. Even in the midst of suffering, God is good and his will is being accomplished. I mean, who can deny, if we're just being honest with ourselves, we've, we've all suffered in one way or another. Maybe you just got sick. Maybe you hurt yourself. You fell down. You got in a car accident. Who knows? Everybody's suffered in some way. We've all felt pain. We've all uh, you know, experienced suffering to one degree or another. And yet, who can deny that we prefer to flee or to avoid trials and suffering? I mean, we do, right? That's, that's just part of our nature. We want to avoid things that hurt. And yet, when it comes to God's children, their trials are never, ever meaningless. Their trials are never, ever for nothing. The reality is that God has either caused them or allowed them, and his reasons for doing so are always good. So let's start by looking at just the first verse of chapter 9. Again, this takes place immediately after what ended chapter 8. It says, as he, of course, speaking of Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. From birth. He's always been blind. Now, if you, if you or I had been in Jesus' shoes here, we're fleeing from people who were trying to kill us. Um, we probably would have been so distracted, so preoccupied with you know, running for our lives, self-preservation, uh, we never would have noticed a man suffering on the side of the road. I mean, you can see one sociology experiment after another where people uh, who are just going about their daily business are oblivious to the fact that somebody in their midst needs help. Somebody in their midst is suffering or in danger, Right? I mean, never mind the fact that these are people who aren't running for their lives. These are people who are just going about their normal business. So how much more oblivious would they be if they were trying to escape a mob who was intent on murdering them? Well, that would be you and me. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. It's clear that this happened immediately following his escape, and yet he's so confident, he's so focused on his mission to seek and save the lost, and he's so confident in the fact that nobody could harm him until his hour had come, that he does notice the man. He does notice the blind man. Now, if you ever have the idea that God is too busy to even notice when you need help, if you ever have the notion that God is 
preoccupied, and so he doesn't notice or care about the fact that you're suffering, let this put your worries to rest. The fact is, God is never, ever too busy to tend to his children, and he never fails to be aware of their suffering. He knows. And, and not only does he know, but he cares. See, it would be one thing if he knew but didn't care. Then we'd be like, well, we're helpless. But the reality is, both are true. He knows, he's aware, and he cares. That's the first thing that we need to see here. He knows and he cares. And it's really where the conversation about suffering should start, by noting that God is aware of it, that he knows about it, and that he will tend to his children. See, you might think after a chapter like chapter 8, where, where Jesus was rejected, that, that God would just be fed up. That Jesus would just, you know, kind of throw up his hands and say, you know, it's, it's no use. People aren't going to believe. And if salvation were contingent upon man's willingness by nature to believe it, he would have been right. But humanity's rebellion against God cannot thwart God's plans. Humanity's rejection of God will never impede God's will from being done. Humanity's hatred of God never prevents God's eternal decrees from coming to pass. King Nebuchadnezzar spent so much of his life resisting God, defying God, feeling like he was at least God's equal, if not God himself. But it all culminated in God causing him to live in the fields like a beast. He became a madman for a period. But when God allowed the king to return to his senses, Nebuchadnezzar humbly and, and correctly, I should add, declared, quote, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's from Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. God's purposes, friends, cannot be thwarted. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. He always gets what he wants. He always gets what he desires. His plans and decrees always, without fail, come to pass. In the words of James Montgomery Boyce, something to keep in mind when we realize that, Quote, if God's purposes cannot be frustrated, and they cannot be, then if we make God's purposes our purposes, we will not be frustrated either. End quote. So it's really important that we start by understanding that God does have a purpose in suffering, particularly in the lives of his children. See, there are some who are convinced that because God is all good and because God is all powerful, that God's children can't suffer, right? We've seen those guys on TV, right? The guys who say that if you have enough faith, you'll never suffer, right? They claim their, that their faith, the, the, the strength of their faith ensures that they will be perpetually healthy. That is not true. That's not true at all. That's not biblical at all. The, the Bible never, never supports that idea. And, and empirically, we know that's not true. Not just because we've all suffered, but also we know every one of the apostles, maybe with the possible exception of John, suffered terrible, agonizing deaths. And we see faithful men and faithful women throughout history who suffered greatly, 
Not because they lacked faith, but because their faith was so great. They'd be burned alive at the stake for their faith. Not because they had a weak faith, but because they had an incredibly strong faith. So before we continue, we need to keep that in mind, but we also should be aware of what exactly this blind man represents. This isn't just some random person that Jesus finds on the side of the road. No, this specific person with this specific condition is chosen for this specific instance. First of all, Scripture says that when the Messiah comes, that he would heal the blind, right? Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 says, The eyes of the blind will be opened, the, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7 is maybe more relevant to our text at hand, however. It says the Messiah would come, quote, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. That brings us to a very important point here. That being that this man has dwelled in darkness his entire life. He was born blind. He's been in darkness from the moment he was born. There's a story of a, of a pretty well-known comedian who was once staying in the same hotel as the musician Ray Charles. Most of you guys, especially from my generation, you know who Ray Charles was. Some of you who are younger, you may not know who he was. Uh, one of the things he was famous for was that he was blind, but the thing he was more famous for was he was just a fantastic, one of, one of the best pianists you'd ever hear. Well, anyway, this comedian decided to stop by Ray Charles' room to, to say hello. And so he knocked, and Ray Charles said, come in. And Ray Charles was, was shaving, but the lights were all turned out in his room. So the comedian asked without really thinking about it. He said, hey, Ray, why are you shaving in the dark? And Ray Charles responded, I do everything in the dark, brother. This blind man is a picture of those who had dwelled in darkness. This blind man had dwelled in darkness physically his entire life. It was all he had ever known. It was all he had ever experienced. And as one who lived in this condition in a physical sense, he was a picture of unregenerate humanity in a spiritual sense. He's a picture of the condition of anyone and everyone apart from God's redeeming grace, apart from the transforming power of Jesus Christ. So we need to understand, therefore, that John is actually giving us a picture of the people from the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, you had the religious leaders who could physically see, but they were spiritually blind. Contrast that with this blind man who can't see physically, but Jesus enables him to see both physically and spiritually. And as we'll see in the passages to come, this man will believe savingly in Jesus. But for now, he's blind. He's been blind since birth. And being blind, let's think about this now, he's not only in a constant state of darkness, he's always been in a constant state of darkness, but he has never, ever seen Jesus. That's the spiritual condition of the lost. That's the spiritual condition of the, of the unregenerate. What will allow this blind man to see Jesus? Only Jesus. Only Jesus can. So this is a picture of sovereign electing grace. 
Further, because he was in darkness and could not see, he couldn't seek for Jesus. Scripture tells us in very plain language in Romans chapter 3 that this is what natural man does apart from God's grace. Does, does man seek God? Does anyone seek God? No. Not even one. Nobody seeks God. Not even one. And not only can he not see Jesus, not only can he not seek Jesus, but the man is a beggar, as we'll see as we keep going. And he's all alone. So there's nobody who can even help him find Jesus. All of this points to the reality of humanity's spiritual condition by nature in darkness. Unable to see Jesus. Unable to seek Jesus. Remember, our will by nature is that we are in bondage to sin. Utterly helpless and unable to remedy our condition. Think of the man back in chapter 5. Think of the man by the, the pool of Bethesda. He couldn't walk. And he wasn't seeking for Jesus. He wasn't asking anyone to bring Jesus to him. Jesus had to come to him. Same thing here. Same thing here in chapter 9. Jesus had to be the one to initiate. All of this points to this truth. That if anybody is saved, Jesus must come to them. He must make the first move. He must be the one to initiate. And of course, we'll see that same truth when Jesus uh, raises Lazarus from the dead a couple chapters further up the road. But this is the glory of the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is that nobody in any condition, in any place, in any time is beyond the reach of God's transforming grace. When God extends his grace, it is sufficient. It's sufficient to heal. It is sufficient to restore. And his grace does not leave the elect in their natural state of spiritual death and blindness and in the natural hatred of and rebellion toward God. This man has lived his life in a perpetual state of suffering. But that's all about to change, isn't it? And what we'll see is that his suffering, from the day he was born, it was never, ever in vain. Because while the blind man couldn't see Jesus, Jesus could see him. While he wasn't aware of Jesus, Jesus was aware of him. So how do we start to understand God's purposes in allowing suffering? Well, Let's we'll start with this, not with the understanding that the disciples have at this point. Let's look at verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now that is a very worldly, very wrong way of thinking about suffering. That's just where the disciples are at this point. They look at the man and what do they see? They see a sinner. His fellow citizens in Jerusalem, as we'll see later in the chapter, they saw him as nothing but a beggar. The Pharisees, they see him as nothing but a means to an end, a way that they can, uh, they can ensnare, they can trap Jesus. But Jesus sees him differently than anybody else. Jesus sees this man as a man who needs to be rescued. Can we see the world around us that way? 
When you watch the news, can you look at those people who are doing violence? Not as your enemies, but as people who need to be rescued? Can we see those who hate us because of our faith, not as our enemies, but as people who need the gospel? As Christians, that's, that's the first way that we should see people who don't know Jesus or who don't know him yet. But this question that the disciples ask, why was he born blind? Is it because of his sin or is it because of his parents' sin? It reveals that the disciples aren't at that point yet where they can see somebody other than themselves as somebody who needs to be rescued, where they can see him as, as anything but a sinner. They even seem to think that he's suffering justly, that, that, it's, that it's not a bad thing that he's suffering, but that it's due to sin, either the sin, uh, a sin that he committed or the sin of his parents. So they basically have the same view. If you've read the book of Job, they basically have the same view that Job's friends had when Job was suffering. Surely you did something, you deserve this because of something that you did is basically what their view boils down to. Now let's just start with this. That, that is not a biblical assumption. That's not a valid or biblical assumption at all. And yet there are people, again, who claim to be Christians who would say that if this man had only enough faith, if he had only believed, he would have been healed already. That is just nonsense. That is, that is just nonsense. And, and this, this passage actually proves that it's nonsense. This is one of the more common erroneous ways of thinking about suffering. It's a pagan, very just worldly way of thinking about suffering. It, it, it's really not all that far removed from the concept of, of karma, which isn't biblical, by the way, in any sense at all. It's not even close to being biblical. One of the possibilities that the disciples are apparently willing to entertain is that this man either sinned in the womb or that he sinned in a previous life. Remember, he was, he was born blind. So it's not that he uh, was born seeing and then they're, they're thinking, okay, then he sinned and then he became blind. No, they're thinking either he became blind in the womb because of a sin in the womb or he sinned in a previous life and so he's blind in this life. In other words, it seems as if the disciples are at least open to the idea of reincarnation. Believe it or not, there were people in first century Israel who did hold that view. The scriptures, however, nullify any possibility of reincarnation. The scriptures teach us that it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. We only get one life. Only one life. No reincarnation. The second possibility that the disciples are willing to entertain is that the man suffers because of the sin of his parents. Now, this is something that is theoretically possible. I mean, it does happen. Uh, there are people who are born with birth defects because uh, you know, the mother was a drug addict, maybe, or, uh, or an alcoholic. Uh, nevertheless, God does not punish the children for the sins of the parents. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 says, The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The, righteous, uh, the righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. 
This reminds us of two things. First of all, this reminds us that we're all going to be held accountable for our own sins and that the guilt of our ancestors is not something that we are going to be held accountable or responsible for. How contrary is that to today's way of thinking in the world? If you look at the guilt that the culture today tries to lay on the shoulders of innocent people whose ancestors sinned, Uh, in the social justice debate. That is not biblical at all. That's not even close to being biblical. We are only responsible for the sins that we've committed before God. And yet we're also reminded the righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. So that also reminds us that anyone who repents and believes in Jesus will be forgiven and saved. But there's a third possible error in thinking about God's purposes in suffering, and that is the idea that any time a person is suffering, it's the result of God's wrath. That, that all evil is, is basically God just pouring out his wrath. I mean, you don't know that. I don't know that. Nobody can possibly know that. Only God could know that, and we're not God. But the truth is there are just no easy answers when it comes to suffering. But there's one thing that we do know, and that's this. We know that the believer's suffering, the Christian's suffering, is always, always for their good and for God's glory. And for that reason, let's be very clear about this. A Christian who is suffering should be entirely different. Their their suffering, their whole condition, their whole attitude toward their condition should be completely different altogether different from the suffering of a non-believer. So theoretically, you should be able to go into a hospital room where you'll find a Christian and a a non-Christian suffering from the same condition, and yet their conditions aren't even possibly equal. The non-believer suffers without any greater purpose. He suffers because the world has fallen. You know, when, when... sin happened, when sin entered into creation, so did suffering, so did evil, and he's just a victim of that, just like everybody else, and that's it. But the Christian suffering is always being used to accomplish something that could not be better accomplished any other way. And what is that? What is God accomplishing in our suffering? So many things. So many things. I'll just list three. First, our growth in Christ's likeness. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, right? We know that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what every situation in the believer's life is doing. Whether you're comfortable or whether you are being afflicted, whether you are being persecuted or whether you are just on the mountaintop of life and loving it. All things are working toward this end, being conformed to the image of Christ. All things are ordained to accomplish this specific purpose in our lives, including suffering. A second thing that God's accomplishing in our suffering is he's increasing our hunger for heaven. By, by nature, our flesh loves the world, right? But you don't love the world so much when you feel like you're going to die. 
Second Corinthians chapter five, verse two says, for indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Paul's talking about the suffering that we endure in our bodies and how it causes us to long all the more for heaven. Even in the midst of suffering, God is good and his will is being accomplished. But let's understand this. Everybody suffers. Everybody suffers. It's part of living in a fallen, broken, sinful world. If there was no sin, there would be no suffering. So I guess technically speaking, Jesus could have turned to them and said, well, it wasn't his sin or his parents' sin. It was Adam's sin that caused his blindness. Sin is ultimately at the root of all that is wrong with the world, including suffering and death. Now, if you, if you believe that, how much should that cause you to hate sin all the more? It should. But that brings us to the third thing that God is accomplishing in our suffering, which is revealed in what Jesus says back to the disciples. Let's look at verse 3. It says, Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why does God ordain that we should suffer? There are all kinds of reasons, but the third one, which is perhaps the most important reason for us to really wrap our minds around, is because it serves as a means for God to display his power and glory in our lives. It serves as a means for God to display his power and his glory in a unique way in our lives. Now, sometimes that means that he, uh, you know, people pray and he answers that prayer and he heals somebody. He does that sometimes, absolutely. I don't know any Christians who, who don't believe that. More commonly, however, God displays his power and his glory in our suffering by giving his children the grace, the strength, the hope, and the peace to endure their trials while not losing hope in him. See, when Christians in particular suffer, we should be mindful of the fact that we do so only because God has a great purpose of blessing us in it. That's really hard for us to understand. I get that. But that's the way God has everything designed for his children. To bless them, even in their suffering. Sometimes his purposes are corrective. Sometimes he's, uh, he's trying to discipline us. Sometimes suffering serves the purpose of teaching us to hate sin and teaching us to walk in closer obedience, fuller obedience to the Lord. Now, if you think that we can learn how to do that without there being some pain... You, you might not understand how inclined we are by nature to not hate sin and to not walk in obedience. But that requires that, that, that natural inclination we have to, to love sin and to walk in disobedience makes it necessary that the Lord discipline us. And his word affirms, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So sometimes suffering serves 
a corrective purpose. Reminding us that life is short. Reminding us to walk in obedience to the Lord. And I believe that in these situations when it's corrective, the person will understand the connection between their sin and their suffering and they will confess and repent of their sin and they will walk in closer obedience to the Lord. The lesson will be learned. God has ordained that they will. But sometimes suffering isn't corrective. Sometimes its purpose is constructive. We need both correction and construction if we're going to be grown in the likeness of Christ. There are things in our lives, every one of us, there are things in every one of our lives that need to be torn down. But there are also things in all of our lives that need to be built up. Right? Our, our love of sin and, the, and our love of the ways of the world need to be destroyed daily, right? And our complete and total surrender and our dependence upon God needs to be built up. The desires of the flesh need to be torn down. Our persistence in putting the deeds of the flesh to death needs to be built up. So there are corrective purposes and there are constructive purposes to suffering. If you're a Christian and you're suffering in one way or another, you will never ever suffer in vain though. God always has a purpose in it. There's always something that God is accomplishing in us, no matter what our situation is. And suffering just has a unique way of getting our attention and accomplishing those things in a way that comfort does not. That's why James would write, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. He said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Does that include suffering? Trials, does that include suffering? Of course it does. Absolutely. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Who was perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Jesus. James is saying, your trials, you should be rejoicing about your trials because they're teaching you to be more like Jesus. And as God is accomplishing his work in your life, in your suffering, he's also using your suffering as a means of displaying his power and glory in you to the world around you. When you're corrected, and when you learn to obey God more fully, God is glorified in his power that's transforming you. When you when, when your faith and when your hunger for heaven are grown in your suffering, God is glorified in the hope that you have in spite of your circumstances, something the world can never and, and will never really understand. I mean, so often we, what we want, if we could have things our way, we just want trials and suffering to end. But think about Paul's experience when he prayed that God would remove his thorn in the flesh. What did God say to him when he had prayed that God would remove this thorn in the flesh? God responded to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And what did Paul think about that? What was his attitude about that? He said, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
Now, as crazy as it sounds and as contrary to the world's way of thinking as this sounds, suffering in the Christian life is never vain, it's never futile, and it's never pointless. Rather than proving that that God doesn't love us or that he doesn't want what's best for us, it proves that he does love us. Rather than proving that he's powerless to prevent it, it presents an opportunity for his power and his glory to be put on full display. Even in the midst of suffering, God is always good and his will is being accomplished. But there's another application that we find in our text, a very practical application, and that's in how we respond when we see others who are suffering. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus continues by saying, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So we've seen why God allows trials and suffering in our lives. But what should we do about it, especially when it's taking place in the lives of others around us? This brings us to a final principle in our text, and it's this. It's that if God intends to be glorified in suffering, not only will that be seen in Him giving us the grace to endure and be transformed and and conformed more into the image of Christ in our suffering, but God is also glorified in our ministry to others who are suffering. Look very carefully at what Jesus says here. Look at verse 4 with me. What's the first word in verse 4? We. Not I. We. We must work the works of him who sent me. He doesn't say, I've got to do what God sent me to do. Now he's applying it to the disciples. In other words, this is a mandate for you and for me and for everyone who has repented and believed savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be about doing God's works, and we must be about God's purposes. Remember, if we're about God's purposes, and God's purposes can't be frustrated or thwarted, then our purposes, insofar as they align with God's purposes, cannot be thwarted either. And among God's purposes in suffering is the call to minister to those who are in the body of Christ who suffer. Sometimes that simply means praying for them. That's, that's big, praying for them. Sometimes it just means listening to them. Sometimes it means counseling them. Sometimes it means encouraging them. Sometimes it means you, you, you drop everything and you make them dinner and you bring it to them. I mean, there are countless ways to minister to those who are suffering, but in one way or another, we are called to minister to those in the body of Christ who are suffering. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that we must gather in person, underline that, in person every week. Because there's no such thing as gathering not together, gathering remotely. There's no such thing. That's an oxymoron. One of the reasons we gather, the Bible tells us, is to serve and encourage one another. We can't do that if we're spread out. We can't do that if if you're in your home and I'm in my home and we're on Zoom or something for an hour, but we really don't get any personal time to talk privately. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says this. It says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. 
In other words, how to present opportunities for ministry, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How will you be encouraged by a body of Christians if you have no regular weekly interaction with them? How will they know how to pray for you? How will they know how to serve you? How will you know how to pray for them? How will you know how to serve them? And how can you serve them if they're someplace else? If we're going to commit ourselves to God's work, we have to understand that assembling in person is the primary context that God has designed ministry to take place. And I'm not being political, by the way. I'm just being biblical. See, for the past six and a half months, most churches have been closed or greatly restricted in their ability to gather across our country. And at the same time, so many pastors I've talked to in those churches have had church members go into deep depressions and they're unable to minister to them. They've had church members commit suicide, at least partly because nobody was there to minister to them and to encourage them. The suicide, everybody knows, the suicide rate this year is up exponentially as a result of these lockdown restrictions. By and large, the church has been closed when everybody needed church the most. But notice the urgency in what Jesus says. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. See, Jesus knew that his hour was coming. He'd be arrested, he'd be tried by Pontius Pilate, and he would be crucified, and he would die. And so they had to do the work while they could. And the same is true of you and me, friends. Our time is coming. We don't know when it is. God knows when it is. We don't know when it is, but our time is coming. The time is coming when we will no longer have the ability to glorify God and demonstrate his power before men in our service to others in this world. And this is part of our calling. This is part of our purpose in this world. Jesus says that he's the light of the world as long as he's in the world. Elsewhere, in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 5, he said, you, to his disciples, to his followers, to, to those who believe in him, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The world around us, friends, has so many needs. There are needs that people have absolutely everywhere. This world needs hope. And there's only one hope in this world. And that's Jesus. As the culture around us grows darker and darker, the greatest need that this country has is for the light of the gospel to shine forth. God provided for our needs by sending the Lord Jesus to take our sin upon himself and to, to give us his own righteousness, right? He, he's done that. that. That work is completed. But now God provides for the needs of the world by sending forth his people to shine the light of Christ in the darkness. 
we won't take no for an answer on that. We must do it. We must be obedient to what Christ has instructed us to do. And so may God grant us opportunities. May he grant us conviction. And may he grant us grace to put the light of the power and the glory of Christ on full display in this dark, spiritually blind world that Christ, through the preaching of the gospel, may open many, many eyes to believe. And to that end, let us be confident that even in the midst of suffering, God is good, and his will is being accomplished. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for granting us the grace to gather, the grace to believe, and the grace to see the glory of Christ. We thank you that you have given us everything that we need and that you have provided for us so abundantly. We thank you that though we were lost in darkness and did not see you and did not seek you and did not have any means of helping ourselves, you gave us sight. You opened the eyes of our hearts to behold the glory of Christ and to believe. Oh, Father, we pray that you would grant us a deeper, fuller compassion for those who are lost. May we not be hypocritical looking down our noses at sinners who need to be rescued. But we pray that by your grace, you would teach us to have compassion and to see the world around us as an opportunity for your light and your glory to be displayed in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.